Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be able, uh, good to be able to be with you today. Even though, as was mentioned in the prayer, we can't meet in person due to certain circumstances. Following the Feast of Tabernacles, which ended last weekend, at least two people in the Joplin, Missouri area who attended the feast in Branson, Missouri, have become sick with COVID-19. Two of our members were in close contact on the Sabbath prior to the end of the feast with the two who later became sick. The sick persons were not displaying obvious symptoms of sickness at the time our members were in contact with them. Our members involved in the contacts attended our services on and the holy day, uh, the last great day, and they are isolating themselves, but to my knowledge have not shown significant symptoms of COVID-19 sickness. <clears throat> so it's uh, due to the circumstances it's necessary that we were not able to meet in person today. So we're meeting here through this video session. In today's sermon, I want to review some information about the COVID-19 disease. And also discuss biblical principles regarding disease, faith, and protection. Some of what I plan to cover today is a reiteration of information presented in the past, but I believe it's worth repeating and emphasizing. First, I want to cover some information about the COVID-19 disease that I gathered from studying various sources. While COVID-19 is a serious disease, it is usually not fatal to those who are affected by it. Apparently, most people who contract the virus don't get sick enough to even know that they have the disease. In, in five states in India, for example, where testing was concluded, between 50 to 82 percent of the COVID-19 cases identified were asymptomatic, meaning they were not showing symptoms. And <clears throat> most others have only were only demonstrating mild symptoms. Similar results have been found in studies in the United States and other areas. In some circumstances, however, indications are in a very small percentage perhaps a fraction of 1%, the virus can trigger a severe inflammatory response affecting the respiratory tract that can result in death. The number of deaths actually caused by COVID-19 have undoubtedly been grossly exaggerated. It's been claimed in various news reports that more than 200,000 people have been killed by the virus, as it's been put in some reports in the United States. Analyzing what has happened or what has been reported, I should say, one source, source states, quote, the number of cases involving COVID-19 and severe acute respiratory syndrome, which is the main uh, effect of the disease that would cause death, 
those two together involve fewer than 22,000 out of 154,000 reported deaths in the United States as, this, uh, as of the date of this article. And the article goes on to say, suggests that what was being reported as a COVID-19 death rate or death count of approximately 154,000 or more could be wrong by a huge amount. By other criteria, the same article states the COVID-19 death count could be inflated by close to 100,000 deaths. By the numbers current when that article was written, the number of deaths could be only about a third of those that are being reported. The panic and fear generated by this disease is out of all proportion to its lethality. So we need to recognize COVID-19 is a serious and highly infectious disease, but one that is usually not fatal to those infected with it. Most of those who have died from COVID-19 are elderly people, often with comorbidities or other life-threatening diseases, in other words. It would seem useful then to ask the question concerning COVID-19, who is contagious and when? It is not known if or to what extent asymptomatic carriers of the virus that causes COVID-19 may spread the disease, and I'll discuss asymptomatic carriers in more detail later on in this sermon. But pre-symptomatic individuals, that is those who have no symptoms but later develop symptoms, are believed to be contagious. It can take from two to 14 days from exposure to the onset of symptoms, during which time the person affected can be contagious according to the Centers for Disease Control, which is a government agency of the federal government of the United States. According to the CDC, symptoms of COVID-19 infection may include any of the following, fever or chills, cough, shortness of breath or difficulty in hearing and breathing, fatigue, muscle or body aches, headaches, new loss of taste or smell, sore throat, congestion or runny nose, nausea or vomiting, and diarrhea. And these symptoms do not include all of the possible symptoms. But any of these symptoms could be a result of something other than COVID-19. Nevertheless, if you have some or all of these symptoms, it may be a result of the disease. Not necessarily, but it may be. The CDC advises that one seek emergency medical attention if any of the following occur or occurs, uh, trouble breathing, persistent pain or pressure in the chest, new, con new confusion, inability to wake or stay awake, or bluish lips or face. Another useful question is, do asymptomatic carriers spread COVID-19? Do asymptomatic or people that are not showing symptoms 
as discussed earlier, spread COVID-19. A spokeswoman for the World Health Organization, WHO, as it's often referred to, stated, quote, more research and data are needed to truly answer whether the coronavirus can be widely spread through asymptomatic carriers. We have a number of reports from countries who are doing very detailed contact tracing. She said they're following asymptomatic cases, they're following contacts, and they're not finding secondary transmission onward. It's very rare. She said government should be paying more attention to symptomatic cases in order to stop the spread of the virus. What we really want to be focused on is following the symptomatic cases, she said. Now, the WHO organization later clarified that statement to speculate that 16 to 40% of people who are asymptomatic could transmit the virus. However, that speculation may be called into question by a study involving 455 people who had contacts with asymptomatic COVID-19 disease carriers or a carrier. And the results as stated in the report of this study was, quote, no severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus two or SARS-CoV-2 infections was detected in 455 contacts by nucleic acid test. Their conclusion was, quoting, in summary, all the 455 contacts were excluded from SARS-CoV-2 infection, and we can conclude that the infectivity of some asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 carriers might be weak. That's a study on the infectivity of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 carriers published by the um, National Institute, Institutes of Health of the U.S. government in August 2020. Another study claims that asymptomatic patients, I'm quoting now, asymptomatic patients had as large of a viral load in their noses, throats, and lungs as patients who were infected with the coronavirus and developed symptoms of COVID-19." End quote. In the article reporting these results, it speculated that people can spread the virus, although, again quoting, because asymptomatic people don't cough or sneeze, they might not be as efficient at spreading the virus as symptomatic people, end quote. And that's from an article titled, Can Asymptomatic Patients Spread Coronavirus? from the website advisory.com, August 10th, 2020. So there are conflicting opinions about the spread of the virus by asymptomatic persons who have contracted the virus associated with COVID-19. The preponderance of, it, of evidence seems to indicate that the spread of the disease is not primarily linked to asymptomatic carriers, but could include pre-symptomatic carriers. But as the WHO emphasized in the statement read earlier, the main focus should be on isolating symptomatic carriers of the disease. The main focus should be on isolating symptomatic carriers of the disease. 
Also, although they did not say so in the statement quoted, early treatment of symptomatic persons is important to the ultimate outcome. Another question we may consider, how long is a person contagious after onset of the disease? Although it is stated that sick people may have replication competent virus up to 10 or 20 days after the onset of symptoms, depending on the severity of the symptoms, the CDC states, quote, a large contact tracing study demonstrated that high risk household and hospital contacts did not develop infection if their exposure to a case patient started six days or more after the case patient's illness onset. In other words, end quote, in other words, it appears for practical purposes, a sick person remains contagious for about a week or so after the onset of symptoms. Another question is when should one quarantine or self-isolate? And this is a topic covered on the, the CDC website. And uh, they state, quote, stay home if you might have been exposed to COVID-19. And might have been exposed would include close contacts such as the following. The following, according to the CDC, are considered close contacts. If you were within six feet of someone who has COVID-19 for a total of 15 minutes or more, another item that would count is if you provide care at home to someone who is sick with COVID-19. Another close contact would be if you had direct physical contact with the sick person. In other words, you hug the person or kiss the person. Another contact would be sharing eating or drinking utensils with a sick person or the person sneezed, coughed, or somehow got respiratory droplets on you. If any of those things occurred, then the advice of the CDC is to stay home or stay isolated for up to 14 days. Another question is, how may the general public be protected from COVID-19? How may the general public be protected from COVID-19? This is an important question. And how this epidemic should be handled in relation to public policy has generated a great deal of controversy. In the United States, state and local health authorities guided to one extent or another by CDC or WHO recommendations and also the advice of government bureaucrats such as Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks have taken various approaches. In some states, severe restrictions and government mandates have required shutting down many businesses and routine activities, including religious services, restaurants, barbershops and hair salons, and any number of other businesses or activities and forbidding most activities involving groups of people 
unless the people in question were involved in certain types of political protest or rioting. In some jurisdictions, people are encouraged or required to stay in their homes unless on some essential business, such as buying groceries. And everyone is required to wear a mask if outside of their homes, whether outdoors or in any kind of business open to the public. In New York State, for example, uh, for, or, or for, I should say for several weeks, the governor required nursing homes to accept into their facilities COVID-19 patients, guaranteeing the spread of the disease to the most vulnerable population, while at the same time, local officials in the state were forbidding many routine activities such as religious services. Millions of people have lost their jobs as a result of such government mandates in New York and a number of other states and many thousands of businesses, especially small businesses, have been forced into bankruptcy. In a few areas, such as South Dakota, the government authorities took little or no action to shut down routine businesses or other activities, but did take action to limit the spread of the disease by focusing on local outbreaks and devising ways to deal with them. Numerous health professionals have been alarmed at the folly of shutting down a large portion of the economy of a state or nation in response to this disease. On October 4th, 2020, three epidemiologists issued a public statement called the Great Barrington Declaration. And they invited medical scientists, practitioners of medicine and concerned citizens to sign the declaration online. As of today, more than half a million concerned citizens have signed, more than 10,000 medical and public health scientists have signed, and more than 28,000 medical practitioners have signed this declaration. The declaration reads in part, and I'm quoting here, as infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousand fold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, fails, or, or should say falls. The vulnerability falls as immunity builds in the population is what they're saying. Going on, it says, we know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity. In other words, the point at which the rate of new infections is stable and that this can be assisted, but is not dependent upon a vaccine. 
Our goal should therefore be to, to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We, cause this, we call this focused protection. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health response to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households can be implemented and as well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity, end of quote. So that is the those are the recommendations of a large number of epidemiologists, uh, scientists who engage in medical research, physicians, and supported by a substantial portion of the public. In a sermon I gave last spring, I covered some biblical principles of how to deal with communicable diseases. These principles are consistent with the advice offered in the declaration mentioned a moment ago and other similar statements by highly, highly qualified scientists who have pointed out the folly of a general shutdown as has been imposed by government officials in many jurisdictions. I'm going to reiterate some of the things I said in that sermon, which are also found in an article posted on our website listed or, or a title entitled, quote, how quickly the world can change. In Leviticus 15, we won't take the time to read the entire chapter, but you can read it for yourself later. In Leviticus 15, a person with a serious infection is to be isolated and everything he has touched is to be washed or destroyed. He was to remain isolated for another seven days after any sign of infection is absent. In Leviticus 13 are similar rules about isolating someone 
who has a possibly contagious infection until it's determined that he is not capable of infecting others. In these cases, symptoms are present, which may or may not indicate a communicable disease, depending on the circumstances. But if one has these symptoms, they are either temporarily or permanently isolated, and they give us a guideline for dealing with infectious diseases. By the way, the use of the word leprosy in these chapters is not limited to a specific disease. It is generally uh, applicable to a wide variety of communicable diseases. In Leviticus 12, we find that after childbirth, a woman is considered unclean for a perfect uh, for a period of about a month and a half to three months. The mean and what this means is that she cannot have normal contact with other members of the congregation. She cannot approach the sanctuary and so forth. In other words, she is isolated with her child, whether a boy or a girl. And this gives the mother time to rest and recover from the trauma of childbirth, but it also gives her time to bond with the newborn, to nurse the baby, and thus the baby is protected from contagion as a newborn's immune system takes time to fully develop and it is aided by consuming the mother's milk, <clears throat> milk which has natural antibodies. We read from an article entitled Development of the Immune System in Children, the following, quote, <clears throat> mothers produce milk rich in cells that fight disease and, in, and infection, so breast milk continues to supplement a baby with disease-fighting antibodies long after delivery. Formula cannot duplicate the, the uh, benefits of mother's milk. Comparatively, breastfed infants generally suffer from fewer chronic diseases such as allergies, rheumatic disorders, and ear infections, end quote. So the Bible teaches us that people who are infectious should be quarantined and it teaches us the principle that people who are especially susceptible to disease such as infants or in, in other cases, the elderly or others who are uh, have various uh, infirmities that can make them vulnerable, these people can be largely protected by isolation. It also gives us lessons in rest and proper nutrition. These principles should be uh, implemented in a situation such as we are in now. The quarantine of people who are symptomatic and isolation of those who mo are most at risk would not prevent all serious illnesses or deaths from in an infectious disease, but they would go a long way toward prevention and allow society and the economy to function without a total quarantine or isolation of everybody. In addition to these statements from last spring, I want to address the questions of mask wearing and social distancing, which have become controversial. There is in the Bible no support. Excuse me a moment.
there is in the Bible no support for the requirement for everyone to wear a mask to prevent disease. The evidence shows little support for the efficacy of universal mask wearing to prevent the spread of, of viral disease. As I outlined in a policy statement that I emailed to our members before the Feast of Tabernacles. However, the Bible does support and require a covering of the mouth in a public setting by people infected with a communicable disease. We read in Leviticus 13, beginning with verse 45, Leviticus 13, verse 45, now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days that he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So the person should be isolated and notice given that he is affected by a communicable disease and he should wear a covering over his mouth. Other translations clarify the statement in verse 45 regarding covering the upper lip as it would be literally translated and is so translated in the King James Version and many other translations. What it means is that the mouth, but not necessarily the nose, of an infected person should be covered when he is anywhere near other people. In the Bible and Basic English translation, Leviticus 13 and verse 45 reads as follows, and the leper who has the disease on him is to go about with signs of grief, with his hair loose and his mouth covered, crying unclean, unclean. In the Apostles Bible translation, the same verse, Leviticus 13 verse 45 reads, and the leper in whom the plague is, let his garments be torn and his head uncovered, and let him have a covering put upon his mouth, and he shall be called unclean. According to Gill's commentary, the Jews applied this instruction as follows, quote, both lips, upper and under, which were covered with a linen cloth or veil, thrown over the shoulder and with which the mouth was covered, and this was done, as Aben Ezra says, Aben Ezra was a Jewish scholar. Uh, as Aben Ezra says, that the leper might not hurt, uh, might not hurt any with the breath of his mouth. End quote. Now, given the fact that he was only to cover his mouth and not the nose, means that even though his mouth is covered, he would be able to breathe comfortably through his nose. Now, this would not necessarily totally prevent the expulsion of viruses through the covering, but it would limit the range of expulsion of droplets emitted by coughing or sneezing. It would also effectively limit the spread of larger organisms such as plague-causing bacteria if one were to be infected by a bacterial disease. And with regard to the bubonic plague, which killed millions of people during the Middle Ages and still is, kills people today in various places, the bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium and we read from 
uh, CDC statement on the ecology and transmission of plague, the following concerning infectious droplets. It says, quote, when a person has plague pneumonia, they may cough droplets containing the plague bacteria into air. If these bacteria containing droplets are breathed in by another person, they can cause pneumonic plague. Typically, this requires direct and close contact with a person with pneumonic plague. Transmission of these droplets is the only way that it is uh, the only way that plague can be spread between people. The only way that it can be spread from person to person. Now, there are other ways the plague can be spread, namely from fleas that spread it when they've bitten infected animals and, and, and a few other ways, but primarily by fleas. But it can be spread person to person when a person coughs and another person in some way absorbs the bacteria in the droplets expelled by coughing. So that would be a reason to cover one's mouth if he has an infectious disease to keep from spreading the disease. This is sanctioned and even required in scripture. The idea that an infected person is regarded as unclean, as we read in the scripture quoted, simply means that he has a disease that is communicable and, it, and close contact with that person should be avoided. Hence, he is to warn anyone around him by his appearance and his behavior, as well as by uh, verbal warnings to avoid contact. We read in Luke 17 and verse 12, where it says, then as he, that is Jesus, entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. Notice there were lepers who stood afar off. In other words, they were separated by a fair distance from other people, which is what the scripture requires. So these are ways in which the principle of social distancing and the principle of quarantine, the principle of covering the face is to be applied from the standpoint of scripture. Obviously, it does not entail a significant cessation of normal activity on the part of those who are not sick. And it does not require that everyone wear a face covering. So what we have learned is that the Bible's instructions provide for the protection of those most vulnerable to disease and the separation and isolation of those who are sick and are hence most likely to infect others. Now there's more to this subject than I've covered today. And in a future sermon, I hope to give additional attention to protective measures that one can take to prevent disease and also to address the question of how faith enters into the picture 
of dealing with matters of disease and disease prevention. Thank you for that. 